Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Wings of Freedom, Ukraine's wartime leader, pays a surprise visit to London. President Zelensky addresses the UK Parliament, meets King Charles at Buckingham Palace and pleads for Western fighter jets. I appeal to you and the world with simple and yet most important words. Combat aircrafts for Ukraine, wings for freedom. Under attack on the front line, nurses tell of the dangers they face at work in our hospitals every day. There could be a child in recess and I'm called out to deal with an aggressive parent and I'm like, you're stopping me from providing life-saving care. Join our conversation online with your comments and your questions on the hashtag TonightVMTV. The number confirmed dead in the devastating earthquakes in Turkey and Syria is continuing to rise. It is now past 12,000. Survivors are still being found, but the fatalities have been increasing rapidly and have more than doubled since yesterday. Rescue workers are now warning of a crucial period ahead, after which hopes of finding any more survivors will fade. We just wanted to bring you up to date on that. In other news today, Ukraine's president has called on the West to give his country fighter jets for its war against Russia. During a visit to the UK, only his second time to leave Ukraine since Russia invaded almost a year ago, Vladimir Zelensky also declared that freedom would win and Russia would be defeated. Well, I'm joined now from London live by UK news correspondent Ollie Barrett. Ollie, thanks for joining us on the programme. Um, on this first, uh, let's talk about this coordinated visit. Um, he visited Parliament and he visited King. Um, it was all well planned but kept secret right until last minute. It really was. There were uh, very uh, no leaks at all, I should say, ahead of the visit of Volodymyr Zelensky. We, of course, knew that there was the possibility, um, and if not probability, of Brussels later in the week, but no one really had any clue at all that he was headed here to London. But clearly there was a lot of organisation that had been done beforehand because the red carpet really was rolled out for him, met at Stansted Airport by Rishi Sunak, the UK Prime Minister, having breakfast together and talks together at Downing Street um, uh, after that. Then he went into uh, Westminster Hall behind me to address both chambers of the Houses of Parliament. In Westminster Hall, that is something that is really a re very rare honour. The last world leader to be extended that honour was Barack Obama back in 2011. When he had that honour, he remarked that it was really the Pope and the Queen that were the famous people that he knew had gone before him. Uh, Rishi Sunak and uh, Vladimir Zelensky also visiting troops 
troops in the west of England that are being trained uh, by UK forces, Ukrainian troops being trained by uh, UK forces. But as you were saying, a huge focus while Volodymyr Zelensky was here on air support and the issue of fighter jets. Yeah, let's talk about that because that's the bottom line really for him. But despite all this, I suppose pomp and ceremony around this visit, he talked about wings uh, for freedom and that plea for fighter jets. Uh, will that make a difference? Will it be, will it be listened to in this visit? Well, something is making a difference. We've seen a significant shift in the UK position just in the last 24 hours or so. When it was announced that Volodymyr Zelensky was making this surprise trip, at the same time, the UK government announced that it would be starting to train Ukrainian pilots to fly NATO standard fighter jets. That was already a shift in the UK's position because up until now, Downing Street had been saying it didn't think that it would be able to supply fighter jets to Ukraine because it wouldn't be practical. There was just too much training required for such complicated machines. So we got the sense as Vladimir Zelensky got here that things were moving already. And then later in the day, yet another shift, Downing Street telling us that Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister, has asked his Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace, to investigate when and whether and how the UK might at some point in the future be able to supply its fighter jets to Ukraine. So things are certainly shifting, whether that is precisely to do with the visit that Volodymyr Zelensky has made today or whether there are other domestic political reasons at play, it is hard to be clear at this point. But what is clear, as I say, is that the UK position on fighter jets does appear to be shifting. OK, Oli Barris, thank you for bringing us up to date um, on Vladimir Zelensky's UK visit. Now, back home, and the number of parents using food banks more than doubled last year, according to children's charity Bernardo's. Its survey shows that one in ten parents had used food banks by November. Meanwhile, a new report has revealed that food inflation is now running at over 16%. We spoke to some shoppers about the cost of living crunch. With the big washing powder, bread has gone up, milk. Everything kind of bread, milk, butter, sugar, very basic um, stuff that you need for everyday use, and they've all dramatically increased. Meat has gone up big time. Um, as you said, you know, tea, coffee, milk, sugar, all that. Like luxuries are gone out the window. You know, you're looking for the cheapest now to buy. Just can't afford it anymore. It certainly appears that everyone is feeling it. Uh, a reminder about our nightly live interactive poll, which allows you to have your say. And tonight we're asking, have you changed your shopping habits because of the inflation crisis? You can vote online on virginmediatelevision.ie forward slash vote, or you can follow the QR code that's on the bottom of your screen right now. And we will bring you the poll results later on in the programme. Well, I'm joined now by Fine Gael TD, Alan Farrell. People Before Profit Solidarity TD Mick Barry, Irish Examiner, Political Editor Daniel McConnell and Bernardo's CEO Suzanne Connolly. You're all very welcome along to the programme tonight on this subject of food inflation and indeed uh, this, what your survey shows, Suzanne, about the use of food banks by more and more people in this country. I think long associated, we have heard across the water in the UK about the proliferation of food banks. And now we're hearing about a growing number of people using them here and needing to go to food banks in order to provide for their families. Suzanne, when you talk about food poverty, is this about people going without or people who have to go without nutritious food? Well, Bernardo's and Aldi commissioned research from, by COIN, and it's a national representative sample. And 
The findings are really stark. So we're talking about parents skipping meals. 29% of parents were skipping meals so their children could eat. 19% were saying that they worried about being able to actually feed their children. And as you were saying, 10% are now using food banks or accepting food vouchers. And it actually is about being able to afford food for their children. And in your experience, they're the survey findings, but what you're dealing with day to day in Barnardos, does that bear that out? It absolutely does bear it out. And we, in all of our centres, we do have dried foods available for parents. You know, they can just go to the cupboards and take them. And we're having parents who've never before asked us for vouchers now asking us for vouchers. So we're calling on the government as part of the implementation plan that the new child poverty unit ensures that it ha happens, that what they do is that they implement and develop a food poverty plan. Because we're a wealthy country, mm -hmm. there's no reason why parents have to worry about their children going hungry. It is a stark reality in Ireland today. And tell us about the impact that is having on people's physical and mental health from people that you're talking to and um, that your service deals with and tries to help. Well, can you imagine what it's like for a parent to worry about whether you can feed your children or whether you're thinking I'm going to not heat my home because I want to make sure I can put food on the table. And that will have stress emotionally on you and also it will affect the whole atmosphere in a family home around food. And we then know that if children aren't fed, that they won't be able to concentrate at school. So we think this is something that the government really does have to address. And as I said, we did this survey with Aldi in January of last year and then we did it again in October towards the end of November. And things have disimproved considerably for children and parents in Ireland today. Um, let's bring Alan Farrell in on that. In between that time, actually, we had a budget and we did have yes. measures. And also, the war at that point was months underway and we knew about the knock-on effects and people were already feeling it in their pockets mm -hmm. with the cost of living. So has the government, in your view, done enough to help these families reported in this survey and the other families, of course, who are facing this huge rise in their weekly grocery bills. Well, look, I certainly accept that the findings of the report from Barnardos is, is, is difficult reading um, and I don't think there is a member of government who wouldn't be concerned about it. Um, but the budget that you've mentioned that we introduced, in addition to a lot of the one-off measures that were actually introduced in 2022, will be sustained. And we know from commentary from the Taoiseach over the past number of weeks, including today, that there won't be a cliff edge in terms of the one-off supports, which really are making a huge difference for families up and down the country. Uh, but those, are they? Well, I believe they are because the barometer of it at the moment, we know that the RSI are of the view that it has made a significant mm. impact on families. Now, what you should ask and what I have asked in the past is whether the, the uh, one-off payments, if they were removed, would there be um, would there be sufficient coverage for families? Or less <coughs> Could you remind us of the one-off payments you're talking about and sure. how that then relates to, to food and being able to sure. afford to feed okay. well, your family? Okay, so a lot of families who would, would struggle to put food on the table uh, would invariably be lower income families who would be eligible for the likes of family income supplement for, for those supports. They would also, of course, as with every other citizen or householder, be entitled to the uh, one-off energy grants that have come through, which have made a significant impact on people's ability to keep the heating on. And I think that is something that is very important. There's also been a fuel allowance, a massive expansion in that particular programme. Um, there was actually eight sets okay, that, of one-off. That, that's all. That, that's all. And in addition to disability, energy. in addition to uh, 
domiciliary care allowance. Yeah. But um, specifically, say, on, on food and, and food policy mm. and what Susanna is mm. talking about there, about a food poverty working group mm. actually coming up with a well, plan? Well, it's, it's certainly an idea. And I mean, uh, you know, the Taoiseach said... Should it in be his, more than an Taoiseach, idea at this point, Well, Alan. the Taoiseach has said in, in, in his speech when he was uh, resumed the office of an Taoiseach, he said that he was establishing the, the very unit within his department that Susanna's referenced. I think that's a very good point uh, for him to make. And, and I've qu quizzed him in it in the Dáil myself in relation to the form and structure and what it will actually achieve. And he set that out uh, in part uh, as to what his it ambition hasn't done for it. Yet, but no, it is being established, but it is a cross-departmental group that will report to him um, with actions and outputs. And I think that would be very important for us to keep an eye on exactly what the plans are. And, and I certainly wouldn't exclude the idea that Suzanne has put forward in terms of a food action plan for, for low-income families. Um, uh, Mick Barry, to bring you in on this, I mean, what would you like to see in terms of, of government, of state intervention on this? We've heard... Uh, about you know the, the energy credits and, and the measures there to address somewhat to address fuel poverty, although many will say they need to be more targeted. But just around the area, if we're talking about the cost of living and specifically on, on grocery bills and on people's ability to put food on the mm -hmm. table, what do you think the government should be doing? Okay, I think that uh, none of the supports that have been put in place should be cut. Alan has told us that there's no cliff edge. The Minister for Finance is saying that, he's strongly hinting at least, that some of them will be kept, but some may not be kept. All of the, the supports that were put in place for the winter should be kept past the end of February. There should be no cuts. That's the first point. On the food specifically, I think there's a need for price controls. The government have the power to control prices. The Consumer Protection Acts uh, give the power to the government to set maximum and minimum prices. We've seen the minimum pricing in relation to alcohol. Mm. There needs to be maximum pricing controls brought in in relation to basic foodstuffs. We, we got a report yesterday, just briefly on this, okay. from Kantar, which said that the average household grocery mm. bill for the year 2023 is set to rise by nearly 1,200 euro. This problem hasn't gone away. The Barnardo's report shows that. And it's not going away anytime soon. As long as this crisis persists, we need crisis measures in place. And starting off, no cuts. Okay, price controls. Has, has your party seen it work elsewhere that you think it would be a good model for here? Um, there have been price controls brought in in some European countries. Uh, but in general, governments across Europe have not been in a rush to do this. Okay. All right? But that's not to say that it can't be done that it shouldn't be done. There is a legal framework for it being done in this country under the Consumer Protection Act. You're talking about on the, on the basic, uh, say, basket of goods now, your bread, your butter, the basics. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Um, Danny, and we will, um, we're going to bring in uh, Lorcan Roach-Kelly on this, a food economist, just to get his view on it. But Danny, before that, just to come to you on the government response to all of this. Mm. When you see surveys like this, it, it's, it's really, as well as being, you know, practically... I mean, awful to comprehend. It's also very emotive. It, it's something the government needs to respond to, really. Um, what will that response be, do you think? It, it's very difficult, because uh, Alan said, like, I mean, the government has already unleashed quite a, quite a myriad of, of supports. You know what I mean? By any, by any stretch, like, they have put out quite a plethora of supports. 
Um, and these are extraordinary supports, one off in their nature, quite costly, you know, in terms of macro terms. Mm. But when you hear the granular detail or the mm. kind of case studies that Susanna and Bernardos are talking about, I mean, it's heartbreaking. Mm. I mean, one of the things I, I've seen firsthand, I sit on the board of a, of a disadvantaged school and the value of the, the school meal scheme, it makes such a difference in terms of the day to day. Um, you see the value of a bit of stability in the lives of children. You know, very many of them are in temporary accommodation, very of them have very little stability in their lives altogether. But that sort of tensions around the, you know, the discussions that you're talking about in terms of heating or eating or you know, making a decision as to whether I skip a meal so I can feed my, my, my kids or whatever like that, you know, we're not, we should not be in that space. Um, what can a government do? I think you know, um, you're looking at the, the, the totality of the spend of a house you know, in terms of your heating, you're looking at the cost of food, you're looking at everything else. I, I think you know, there can be, like, there's, there's money there. Like, we, we posted an 11 billion surplus last year. There's Maybe money there. Maybe it's about targeting that money. It certainly is. It certainly yeah. is. But it also, it comes down to, like, the idea of putting a cap on prices. I mean, they stopped, to, they didn't put a cap on energy prices because the money simply would have gone to the producers. Then there needs to be a way to make sure that the impact clearly is the, 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 is softened on the families, but it just doesn't re respond or result in profiteering from, from large companies. Okay, um, let's bring Lorcan Roach Kelly in here, Agri Business Editor with the Irish Farmers Journal. Uh, Lorcan, you're welcome along to the programme. Just briefly to come to the point there that McBarry was making about price controls being put in place, desperate times, desperate measures being needed. Um, do you believe this is a workable policy and would it do the job in assisting people or what, what would be the view on it? And I think that in order to answer that question, first of all, look at where the current food inflation comes from. And if we look at, so you can say the producer, the farmer side, they've had input costs because of the Russian invasion. We see the price of um, fertilizer going up. But also, I think between the farmer and the customer, there's the producer, there's a the processor and there's a retailer. And all of those pieces on the chain have seen their prices increasing as well because they all have refrigeration costs, they have labour costs. So the cost, I suppose, if you put in price controls, you have to kind of figure out where the cost, where, where, where someone's going to lose money in the chain going back the way. You didn't have to look after them. You have to kind of you know, put in um, supports for either the farmer, supports for the processor, supports for the retailer. So I, I think it's, it sounds like a good idea, but it's really would end up being very, very complex. And I'm not sure it's necessarily workable in this situation because like we could talk about food prices being higher, but if you look at back to data, like back to say the 1980s, food prices, food was like 25% of a person's household shopping. Mm -hmm. It fell over the next 30 years to 15, 10, 15%. Meanwhile, population globally has driven from 4.5 billion to 8 billion. So I think we've had a generation of really cheap food and we might be seeing the end of that. Yeah, but on this, because I do think there are a lot of people watching at home really feeling the costs now in their grocery bills, maybe more than anywhere else. The food price spirals that we are seeing now, like 16% in the space of something like 12 weeks, it seems to be at a quicker pace than anything else, which is, uh, and, and other, other items and other areas are moderating. How quickly, if it's going up like this, how quickly, how much more um, is it predicted that it will go up? And then how soon can it come back down again? Because we know whatever come, goes up doesn't co come down quite so quickly. Yeah, I, I think it's the, the, we may not see an awful lot more of it going up because the, the initial drivers of the price increases, the, the higher fertilizer costs, the higher energy costs are kind of starting to wane. So we may see food prices start to plateau. And we're not necessarily going to see food prices fall because we need to build up global stocks of food. And one thing we saw a few reports in the last couple of weeks saying global food stocks are very low at the moment, which means there'll be a lot of volatility depending on where um, 
where demand arises or not. So I think we're going to see food prices, but though, but to see food prices fall again, we're going to have to see some serious changes to government policy. And right now, government policy in Ireland and government policy across Europe is very pushed towards reducing production at the farm level because we like um, nitrates and um, legislation coming in, which means farmers can spread less fertilizer. If they spread less fertilizer, they will produce less basically less food like there's nobody better in the world than turning rain sunshine and mud into dinner than Irish farmers but they need some fertilizer to help with it the oh, fertilizer is gone well that's, and that's going over the next year and a half price the output's going to fall output falls price will stay higher okay all right so you're actually bringing the whole climate debate into all of this as well Lorcan which we probably uh, no, don't no, have no, time no, for tonight but I think, they, I think, the, I think okay. the, the, the nitrate point is important because if farmers are producing less food that will affect the price I'm not I'm not making any comment on the climate right. debate either way but I think okay. farmers producing less food would mean there's more higher prices Alan your take on that now that's a difficult one to address. I mean, firstly, can I just pop back to, 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 to Danny's very valid point in relation to the school meals programme, which is a really, really uh, mm. valid intervention on the part of Heather Humphreys. Over, almost 100 million euro, 260,000 children across the state have benefited from it. It's increased from uh, 20, 37 schools to over 500. And I just wanted to mention that. And I do think um, many really people valid. will welcome that. Yeah. But I'm wondering, is that still, you know, you're looking at DESH schools and, and special schools that can yes. avail of that. Yes. It's not across the board. We don't have the culture like we have in the UK of the hot dinner being served in the middle yes. of the day across every school, which would reduce stigma, yeah. make it accessible for all. There's lots of kids and hard up parents and they're not sending their kids to I a DESH school. I completely agree with you. And, and they're I, having to contend with the I, same I, problems. I, 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 do you believe that they're, they're does need to be maybe more of a push and that could come at government level state policy on changing that and that we should see school dinners absolutely i i, I think the, the the absolute benefit of it like the number of children in disadvantaged schools that are being given breakfast in the school in the mornings even before lessons begin is something that is increasing unfortunately mm. it is a fantastic service for the schools to provide but it is something that i think that we as a state really need to reflect upon and it goes to the conversation mm that we're having as a result of the Bernardo's report. But the school meals programme absolutely should be rolled out. Unfortunately, the DESH school model and how schools are actually allocated DESH status mm. is based on a, a PUBLE, the PUBLE index. Yeah. And I feel that it is quite antiquated. I'm dealing with a secondary school in my, one of my communities who so has two DESH primary schools, but the secondary school is in a DESH secondary school, which doesn't make much sense to me because the, the need has been identified. Yeah. Uh, um, and maybe moving towards more of a universal model here, Mick, I presume that's something that you would be strongly in favour of. I would be strongly in favour of that. Um, People Before Profit Solidarity put out the call today for an emergency budget. Uh, we want to see a radical increase in the welfare rates. We also want to see a uh, national minimum wage, uh, which is well above where we are at the moment. But here's a question, right? that there is 20 days left in the month of February till we get to the, the point where the emergency payments, the winter payments, are due to end, right? I've raised the idea that there should be no cuts in the household budget supports, right? Now, the Taoiseach has said no cliff edge and these well, matters have been discussed. Well, you were told this afternoon so, directly by the Taoiseach that that, no would, that matter will be decided upon next week by Cabinet. So it, okay. we don't have long to wait. All right, OK. Uh, Suzanne, on no that, cuts. I suppose if you were looking at decisions that the cab Cabinet are making now and they're, they're, they're deciding on where mm. they go in terms of support, supports for people, um, what would be priorities now for 
you know, for people yeah. who are availing of your service and others who are really hard pressed right now? Definitely targeted measures for, for lone parents and families on fixed incomes and low incomes, without a doubt. And actually the further rollout of this hot school meals programme would make a massive difference. Mm. Are we likely to see more targeted measures? Because that's been the criticism mm. of government, uh, Danny, to date, that we've got these universal credits mm. and all sorts of things, but really the people who are now highlighted in surveys such as the Bernardas one um, are still falling between the cracks. Yeah, the difficulty the government always say about targeted measures... Is that Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. They're very hard to administer. It's very hard to separate one group from but another. Is there a change? Is there a shift on that? Because I've had a long time to think about it. I now. think so. Look, again, I just don't ever see the system reacting swiftly enough. But I think what we will see is a kind of a, a, a kind of maybe a finessing of some of the credits or the, 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 the schemes as we you know that are in place at the moment. But you know, I, I think ultimately what we have seen. Fine Gael in particular articulate the merit of universality. They've articulated that it's not just those who are the working poor. They say that very middle class families are also struggling mm -hmm. and therefore it's a merit, there's merit in extending those right. because there's only very few at the very top who, you know, who really don't deserve to get okay, it. Okay, we want to bring you the results of our nightly interactive poll now. Tonight's question was, have you changed your shopping habits because of the inflation crisis? The result of that poll was a resounding um, yes. Now, before we go, I want to ask you, Danny McConnell, about the, the big news tonight about uh, Bertie Ahern's return to the mm. fold um, back in the funeral party. Did he ever really go away? <laughs> well, and what's all this about? Yeah, so... Ten years ago, Bertie Hearn resigned from Fianna Fáil ahead of being pushed, essentially, from the party in the wake of the Mahon Tribunal. Obviously, the Mahon Tribunal found very negatively against him, found that you know, the evidence he gave was not truthful, and found that you know, his, his account of his finances were not credible, essentially. Um, so, Michal Martin and Bertie Hearn have essentially been doing this dance for the last ten years. Will he, won't he come back in? 
What happened a number of months ago was at the Fianna Fáil parliamentary party, people like Barry Cowan and Niall Blaney said, you know, the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement is coming up. Bertie Hearn's role in that must be remembered properly, and it's fitting now that he be readmitted. What was significant at that stage was for the first time when asked about it, Micheál Martin didn't shut the door on it. He said, yeah, actually, you know, he's been very positive towards Bertie Hearn. He name-checked him at the Ordesh in, his, in a speech. So, you know, the mood music was certainly heading in a particular direction. So there's no great surprise, I think, that this has happened in advance of that. My only, this, the cynic in me says there's a wider plan of play here. And what's that plan? The Oris in 2025. Yeah, a run for the Phoenix Park. Yeah, I well, going to say that. <laughs> um, and some have suggested maybe Michael Lowry will be back in the Fine Gael fold, Alan. Oh, you're listening to Danny McConnell so much. Uh, no, unlikely. It's not just him saying it. I, my my own remark in relation to Bertie rejoining Fianna Fáil is former political party member rejoins political party. Okay. Big deal. So that's your newsline on it. Okay, well, there we leave it. My that's why he's not in journalism. <laughs> my thanks to Suzanne. Uh, the others are staying on with me. Coming up next, the dangers faced at work by nurses on the front line of our health service. Do stay with us. highlighted the violence and aggression they face on the front line of the health service. At a hearing of the Oireachtas Committee on Health, one nurse gave this evidence of her experience today. There could be a child in recess and I'm called out to deal with an aggressive parent and I'm like, you're stopping me from providing life-saving care. And I'd say, you know, I'm dealing with a really sick child, you're telling me lies. You're all lying in there, you're in there drinking tea. You know, that's absolutely not what's happening at all. And that was Sylvia Chambers giving evidence um, at the Oireachtas Committee on Health today. My panel is still here with me, TD's Alan Farrell, Mick Barry and journalist Daniel McConnell. I'm also joined via Skype tonight by Phil Nihay of the Irish Nurses and Midwives Organisation. And Phil, what we heard from Sylvia there, how reflective is her experience um, of life on the job? Uh, how much does it reflect the daily risks faced by nurses every day? What, what other abuse are we hearing about? Well, I think what Sylvia was trying to portray and did very well was the absolute increase in violence and aggression against frontline staff, particularly uh, nurses and midwives. We know that of all of the assaults, 63% are against nurses and midwives in the health service because obviously they're, they're the face of the health service in many instances, particularly in the out-of-hours period. So the, the issue is increasing. It's getting worse. The, the issue we raised today at the health committee was that there needs to be a real focus from all of the agencies in the state that have responsibility for dealing with this issue. So for example, the Health and Safety Authority, we're very disappointed because we've been asking them for two years to set up and establish a division to deal with the health service as a workplace, considering these high numbers of assaults. Some of these assaults are career ending for nurses and midwives. Uh, Sylvia gave an example today in her own department where 30 nurses in the last year have handed in their notice. We can't afford to lose nurses, particularly highly skilled nurses in, in paediatric services when we're trying to open a new hospital. And certainly, so, um, 
Sorry, Phil, just on that, certainly um, we heard there at the Oireachtas Committee that nurses um, have said they have never heard aggression like it before in their careers, like the aggression that they're hearing now. Why do you think the assaults, the, the physical and verbal assaults, are increasing on staff? Why do you think that's happening? I think there's a number of reasons. But I think the more, the, the more obvious one is obviously overcrowding. And we know from all of the research in this area that when you have low staffing levels, you have an overcrowded system like our public hospitals at the moment. Patients get frustrated. Their relatives get frustrated. And the, the people in the front line, they, they don't control the wait times. They can't. Or indeed, the, the policies that only provide services now in, in, in acute public hospitals. But unfortunately, they're the ones apologizing on behalf of the HSE, on behalf of the minister, etc. And people get frustrated. That's not right. There should be a zero tolerance. One incident should have a reaction. Employers must do more to protect their staff because it simply isn't acceptable. And, and remember, the majority of the people we're talking about here are women. If, if this number of women, 11 a day, were assaulted in any other setting in this country, I think there would be immediate action taken. So why isn't there okay. when it's the health service? Well, look, look, let's ask that of our panel. Alan Farrell, on that, I mean, 11 assaults a day, like it really is quite stark. We know the pressure because we, we've heard about it daily and, and a lot recently, the pressure that health staff are under. But to hear about 11 assaults per day from the Irish Nurses and Midwives Organisation, that's surely a shocking statistic that actually points to a lack of action as well. well it's shocking and unacceptable. Um, and that sort of, um, those, these sort of attacks are on the rise. We've seen that not just in, in our hospitals as highlighted uh, today in the committee, but also in, in society at large. And I think that we have to reflect upon that um, as a society. Now, you know, specific to the, to the nurses scenario, of course, the HSC, the HSA, and indeed um, the hospitals themselves uh, need to look at their security in terms of providing support for the personnel that are there that, as you say, are predominantly women. Mm -hmm. I think that's the very first thing that the HSC need to do. I understand that they are due to have another meeting with the IMO on that very subject, so yeah, I'm, hopeful, I'm, just, I'm hopeful that that matter will, just, be, will be resolved okay. and we can see additional support staff in place. Uh, to support I mean, these nurses called, to ensure like, that they're not attacked. Nurses have called for this for so long now. They've talked about well, there are security burnout personnel. and stress causing a retention and a recruitment mm -hmm. um, crisis in place. Now you're hearing that simply some will just not return to work because of the aggression that they faced on the wards. We have to bear in mind that there's been thousands upon thousands of uh, staff recruited. But what we are seeing in Irish hospitals is something that we're seeing across the world, across Europe right, in so particular. So you're saying this is a global problem? No, I'm not saying it's a global problem. I'm saying there are said. similar issues occurring in other countries All in right. terms of, in terms of Barry, hospital overcrowding. Mick Barry, uh, it's similar across the world um, that we have pressures on, I suppose, retention and recruitment of nurses and then how it's playing out in the healthcare sector and the aggression that they're coming under from patients. Well, there may well be problems across the world. I'd be interested in hearing from Phil, but I think that there's a particular issue 
in the Irish Health Service and there is a lack of action on the part of the uh, powers that be. I mean, there was an 89-year-old man violently attacked in a hospital a little over a mile away, less, from where I live, a couple of weeks back. And we're, just, we're not going to talk specifically sure, because yes. that case is before the court Absolutely, the we won't moment, go into it. Um, but, the, but the point is, but, the point I'm making clear is this, I won't go into the case. We're not going to go into that case. We're not going to go mind. into the case. But, Let, but, but the point, I know, I'm not going to make a point about the case, I'm making a point about the hospitals, which is that the, the point was raised at, the, uh, uh, at that point about a security and safety audit across all the hospitals in the state. It hasn't happened for seven years now. It needs to happen and the monies need to be set aside mm. so that measures are put in place to increase safety for patients and for staff alike. I don't yes. think for a moment there's a lack of, of recognition that money needs to be on, spent rather on security. And so, and there won't. Why hasn't it been done then? Well, I, I, I can't answer that question. I mean, I can I ask can't Phil about that, but I think they but have looked for the security measures to be put in place yes. in emergency departments. So my understanding and, is a meeting took place with the HSE already, and another meeting is to be t to take place. I'm sure Phil can confirm. But your that. meetings are fine. But you know, like I, I want to ask you, just Phil, to bring you back in on that. In terms of what you're looking for, clearly you need more security in hospitals. Um, I presume you brought this up a while ago, um, and, and where, is it, where has it gone to now? A security audit did take place in, across the emergency department in 2017, um, and we've sought a security audit of all of the hospital departments, because these assaults aren't just happening in, in, in emergency departments. So the problem is wider than that, and just to go back to the comment made that, you know, there are similar incidences throughout the world. But what we're presenting today is a crisis in the Irish public health system, which is causing us to lose very valuable staff. And surely the panel would agree that to assault women when they go to work to do a decent day's work should have absolute priority. We shouldn't be waiting for security reviews for seven and eight years, or indeed for a trade union to have to raise the matter at a health committee. I mean, there's something wrong with a system that thinks it's, it's no action is required when you're having 11 assaults a day. And the Health and Safety Authority do a really good job in the construction industry, in retail, and in, in our farming community. Mm. And they have brought about massive improvements to prevent so it, assault, it's the idea. to prevent fatalities. That's what we want. Okay. We want preventative measures put in place to make sure that these assaults don't occur. All right. Let's this should be occurring. Okay. Uh, Danny, on that, like we, we're hearing now the Health and Safety Authority, when HSE staff have reported, you know, workplace incidents, that actually investigations have only occurred mm -hmm. in, in a small percentage and that's why nurses are saying it's going underreported. Yeah. It's vastly underreported <clears throat> because there's no trust in the system to see a resolution or to see arrests or to see prosecutions. No, and, and it goes back to the fundamental problem about how our health system is run. Who's accountable, who's in charge, who's responsible? You have you know, individual hospital managers blaming the HSE, the HSE saying it's the Department of Health, Department of Health kicking the ball back to the HSE in, in, in regard to all of this. Phil makes the point, and I watched some of the committee earlier on, I mean, no one should go to work in fear of their safety. 
in any circumstance. And I, like the hand-wringing from government, you know, TDs, etc., saying this is awful, this is disgraceful. Like, Fianna Gael are in government 11 years. This government has long known about issues about you know, people being attacked on hospital wards in emergency. Like, I've known, as long as I'm in journalism, there have been issues around security and hospital departments and in particular emergency departments. If you've ever had the misfortune of being in an emergency department on a weekend night, mm -hmm. when you've drunks and everything fallen on top of you, when you've elderly people on trolleys, it is the, it's a tinderbox of tension. And yet, and this is why these assaults, because as Phil rightly says, people are at the end of their tether. They're waiting 24 hours to be seen on really uncomfortable chairs or trolleys. They're not being told what's happening. And then you get violence thrown in on top of it. Of course things will happen. Yeah, reflective of, of the wider problems with the health system, a lack of accountability. Everyone passing the book, Alan? I don't think that, that there is a lack of accountability. You don't in, think in so? Relation, when we see HSE reporting 4,796 workplace-related physical, verbal and sexual assaults in 2021, yet only 446 investigations and inspections took place. Okay. I, I can't speak 10%. to the specifics of, the, of the, the information that you have from the HSA there. What I can say is that the HSE are meeting with the union for the specific purposes of ensuring safety in, in, in the workplace for nurses and midwives uh, and others because of course think, there are others are working Phil in makes a good point they've that you said taken, in other workplaces they've already taken certain steps in relation yeah, to I, secure I areas of the hospital with security doors with cameras yes. and things like that now in relation to uh, management and control there are some hospitals around the country who manage this extremely well so unfortunately there are some hospitals where additional security will have to be put in but this is all part of what the HSE okay. do uh, in terms of the review of the, the hospital security. Do you think security. the culture needs and to be looked at, across, Alan? I just want to ask you this question. If it goes across hospitals up and down the country, I think that would be far better because at least it'll give us an opportunity to audit uh, where okay. there are gaps and where so we need to put seven years in, we may see action on that, is what you're saying there. Well, I just want to just very briefly ask you, is there something that needs to change within the culture? If you have construction workers and an incident happens on a site, you have health and safety authority, you're moving in, it's safety first. It doesn't appear from what nurses are saying and health, frontline healthcare staff are saying to apply in hospitals. I don't know why that is the case, Claire. Uh, I, I think for, for any state employee or whether they're working on an agency or whatever it might be, should have certain protections. And I therefore think that the HSC should, HSA rather, should have jurisdiction over hospitals if they already don't. But I, I don't know the specific answer to the question other than what I believe should be the case. All right, okay, we're gonna to have to leave it there. My thanks uh, to Phil and to Daniel and to Alan. Mick is staying on here with me because coming up next, the future of work. And what does a four-day week actually mean? Stay with us. Barry is still here with me. I'm also joined now by Donald O'Donoghue, President of the Employment Recruitment Federation, because we are talking about the four-day working week and all reports back and surveys increasingly showing that this is very popular um, with workers and indeed an idea that this is, this is the way forward now. Um, Donald, we brought you in to talk about all of this because I think we still need to define, if it's not too obvious, what a four-day working week actually entails because it's not cramming your typical five-day week into four days it's actually a shorter working week shorter hours reduced well, hours across the week 
Well, that's the, the idea that's generally accepted is five days pay for four days work. Um, and there was a fairly big study that was done uh, last year in 2022, uh, primarily US and Irish companies. And the findings were really, really positive in terms of very strong benefits around productivity, around well-being and equality, uh, very strong uh, feedback in terms of women's engagement in the workforce and benefits around sleep and everything like that. But um, some of the things that were looked at, like Belgium is the first country that's actually brought in legislation which actually gives you the chance to work, to have the choice whether you want to work four days or five days. So they've brought in a 38-hour work week and it's up to the employee uh, whether they work the 38 hours over four days or five days, test it for six months and see if it works for the but employer and the employee. That's still cramming your five days into four days. Is the, is the model that I suppose is being pursued or being that was surveyed in that instance was actually that workers work like an eight hour day, they work a 32 hour week as such. Is that, that is the ideal model, whereas what, what you're talking about there is maybe the halfway house that suits the employer more. Well, it's the, it's the first one that's been, uh, that we've had legislation for in Europe because there's three, com uh, three countries globally. I think you've got New Zealand, uh, you've got Belgium, and the other one is Iceland. Um, but it's definitely a bit, a bit of a compromise because I think one of the things that we have to think about now as we're in a time where we've got, uh, you know, uncertainty in the market and there's that little bit of the extra cost for employers, we've got statutory sick pay, we've got the auto enrolment of uh, pensions coming in next year. And we've got a little bit of economic uncertainty. Don't ask for too much is what you're saying, Donald. Well, well I'm just saying we have to, we have to remain competitive. So. All right. It is interesting, though, isn't it, around productivity actually shown to increase working fewer hours as well, Mick. But you will also hear bosses saying in certain sectors saying this is just not a runner. We're not going to do this in hospitality. Um, we need people working across the unsocial hours, long days. Yeah. It's the nature of the job. Uh, isn't that sadly a reality? I think there's going to be a uh an old-fashioned struggle between labour and capital <laughs> on this issue. Um, apparently, uh, in the year 1930, the famous economist John Maynard Keynes wrote an essay called Economic Prospects for Our Grandchildren, where he predicted that by 2030 there would be a 15-hour working week. All and, in favour of that. And he wasn't Sounds wrong great. from the point of view of productivity. In fact, the productivity grain, gains have been greater than what he expected. The problem is that the gains that have been made have in large measure, not exclusively, been siphoned off by the big businesses, the corporations, the 1% and so on. The idea of a four-day, eight-hour, 32-hour-a-week mm. working day without loss in pay would be a major step forward for working people. But I think it's, it's not going to be an issue that is won without a real campaign and a struggle. Yeah, because it has been strongly campaigned for. I think the lockdown was the, the catalyst really there. It's been talked about for years, as far back as the 19, 1930s, according to Mick. But, you know, on, on that front, it was really the lockdown that per changed people's perceptions of how work could be done. Do you, do you think, though, Donald, because a lot of people watching will also say, look, I work in a shop, I, I work in a factory, I don't work in a typical office job where I can work remotely or these things may apply to me. Do you think it could, it, it's just about changing a, a, mind, a mind shift, I suppose, and saying yeah, it can apply across the board. It's just about making it work. 
I think there's two very different cohorts. I think there's the roles that can be delivered remotely and the roles that, that, that require personal service. For the roles that can be delivered remotely, it's, about, it's all about measuring productivity and it's all about the performance of the deliverables of the role rather than time at the desk. Um, so, look, I think we just need a, a little bit of balance when it comes to this. When you go back to the pandemic, the biggest win out of the pandemic pandemic was the, the move to, to hybrid working. Mm. And we're seeing that in uh, towns and cities across the country still. Like, that's something that's here to stay. And what's been interesting is the move to work patterns. We've seen that Wednesday is the most popular day for people to be in the office. And people tend to want, the people that can work remotely tend to want to come in and collaborate, maybe Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. They definitely want Monday and Friday off. Mondays and Fridays from home. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Rather than off. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, it does, um, it, it's interesting though, isn't it? One question I was wondering, are we at risk of creating a wider gap between, say, office workers, those in those those jobs and, and people in other sectors that are also more likely to be lower paid? There is a danger of it uh, and it's the reason why I think uh, workers who are not in the offices uh, need to start a discussion on this issue uh, as to how they can organise and campaign uh, for this. Mm. I mean, there's no reason why... Um, a bus worker or a construction worker, for argument's sake, um, couldn't work productively in a company on the basis of four-day week. I mean, look, once upon a time, people worked seven days a week or six days a week, and the idea of working people having the weekend off was seen as an, impossible, an impossibility, a dream. Mm. Four-day week, it's on the agenda now, and I think it's something that working people need to think about, but I also think we need to campaign and organise. OK, um, thank you for that there. We're going to leave it. That is it from us. Um, my thanks to Donal and to Mick and the rest of our panellists tonight. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. You can also now find us on Instagram and on TikTok. But uh, from all the late team here, good night. Take care.